Well, I want to invite you, like we do almost every Sunday, to open your Bibles. And I invite you to turn to John chapter 7. If you're still getting used to your Bibles, that's okay. About three-fourths of the way back, the Gospels are found, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, John chapter 7 is what we're going to be looking at today. If you haven't been with us, we're in a series called Encountering Christ. And almost all year long, except for July and August, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And so we're making our way through it. And the whole goal of doing this is that there are lots of encounters that people have with Jesus in the Gospels. And we're trying to study those and learn how we might encounter Christ too for ourselves personally. I hope you'll continue to follow along the banners as they get added to each week. But in this series that we're in today, we come to an interesting encounter of Jesus and his brothers. Jesus and his brothers. And uh, some of you are here and saying, well, I came because it's Mother's Day, and you're studying Jesus' brothers. And I guess the best way to say it is this. Yes, we're studying, I guess we're having a Brother's Day message on Mother's Day. How's that? But as we talk about Jesus' brothers today, I think what I hope you'll see is that this has a lot to do with God's will and God's timetable. And what you and I, what his brothers did with God's will and God's timetable in their lives. And so if you're following along, I want to just set up this message before we study some of the chapter itself. Let me just mention several things. First, if you're following along, John tells us the Feast of Tabernacles is near. John tells us the Feast of Tabernacles and saying, I'm sure some of you are thinking, that doesn't help me. I have no idea what the Feast of Tabernacles is. And I don't have that much idea either because I didn't grow up Jewish. But this was one of three major festivals that Jewish people celebrated every year. It lasted eight days. Josephus, the historian, tells us that it was the most popular of all three. There was the Feast of Passover, then the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus, we're told in this part of the Gospels, is getting close to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, some of you go, okay, I'm going to talk about this a whole lot more next week. So some of you are saying, I don't want to miss that. But the point is, is that I'm going to talk more about it in detail. Today, I just want to tell you a couple things about it. The Feast of the Tabernacles, I want to tell you where it happened. It happened in Jerusalem. So you look up here on a map. Jesus is way up north in Galilee, that area called Galilee. So now, because the Feast of the Tabernacles is near, what that means is that he is going to travel like all Jewish males were required to do for these three festivals. He was going to travel south. And most of the time, they traveled in big, great, big caravans. That's why when Jesus was a little boy, his parents got separated from him and didn't know he was gone until like two or three days later because they thought he was with somebody else in the great big caravan. Does that make sense? So that's what every Jewish uh, male would know, that they needed to head that way. That meant that Jerusalem was packed during this festival that lasted eight days. Have you ever celebrated something eight days long? That's what they did. The second thing that I hope you'll know is that the Feast of Tabernacles tells us what time of year it is. Feast of uh, Passover happened around, we remember this when we studied Good Friday and Holy Week, it happens around March or April every year. But the Feast of the Tabernacles happened after harvest time at the end of September or October. John is the only gospel writer that gives us any information at all about the Feast of Tabernacles. So he does it on purpose. 
He wants us to understand that there's some things going on, okay? Second thing I want you to see is that we know the names of all four of Jesus' brothers. We know the name, the names of all four of Jesus' brothers. I'll never forget early on when I was a pastor that I had a person come up and talk to me that was visiting our church, and they said, you know, can I just, can I just ask you, did you say Jesus had brothers? I said, yeah, the, the Bible teaches that. They said, well, I grew up in the Catholic church, and we were taught that Jesus didn't have any brothers. So what does that mean? And again, I'm not interested in bashing or anything. I just I said, well, I said, here's what I think the Catholic church teaches that. They want to honor Mary so much that if they say that Mary had any other children besides Jesus, it takes away from her holiness, her blessedness. But just so you know, the Bible does tell us that Mary was still blessed among women, but she had more children with Joseph. Jesus she had by the Holy Spirit, the rest of the children she had with Joseph. And so if you've never seen it before, Matthew 13, maybe this will be helpful for you just to know. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. I've listed, by the way, this reference out to the right in your notes in case you want to look at it later. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, let's read all four of the names together, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Some of you have gone back to a town that you grew up in, and you remember that most people remember you like you were in junior high. And you can't outrun it. When I moved back to Iowa, I fortunately had left when I was eight and came back when I was 28. So they had no dirt on me that way, except a couple <laughs> stories when I was in kindergarten. Okay? But the point is, is that Jesus, Jesus goes back to his hometown. They're going, where did this guy get this stuff? We know his brothers. We know his mom. We know his dad. We know his sisters. Friends, I just want to tell you, one of the things I appreciate is this makes Jesus more real. He had brothers. They had names. And they probably knew what it was like to be envious and jealous of each other. They, I bet, you know, at some point, these brothers had to, had to figure out what to do with Jesus' rising popularity. But they were that, and, and I'll tell you more about his brothers as we go on. The last thing I want you to see before we look at the passage is this, is that like Jesus' brothers, we can miss who Jesus really is. Like Jesus' brothers, we can miss who Jesus really is. From time to time, and I've felt this myself, I run into people that go, you know, it'd be so much easier for me to believe in Jesus if he was here on earth now when I was alive, or I was alive when he was here on earth. Because if I could just see him, if I could just hear him, if I could just see the miracles, I would have no problem believing. Really? I got to tell you, there were tons of people that were alive and around Jesus when he was here on earth, including his own family. And guess what? They missed him. It didn't help them at all. The more miracles he did, they still didn't realize who he was. And here's what I've learned. I grew up in a a great home. My dad was a pastor. I heard about Jesus all the time. It was a great privilege. Missionaries would come and stay in our homes. Great Christians 
that I respect very much, and I miss Jesus. I didn't get it. Clean miss. And so I realized that there's always a danger. Here's why we need this message today. Here's what we can learn with his brothers, is that if we're not careful, we'll miss Jesus too. You can go a whole lifetime and miss Jesus. Did you know that? You can attend religious feasts, you can come to church, you can do all kinds of religious things and still miss Jesus. I know. I've done it. And so did Jesus' brothers. So what I want to pray for this morning is that we'll be able to understand what Jesus teaches about this. Because he says, you don't have to miss who I am. There's a way to know. There's a way to find out. And I want you to be aware of it. So he's going to share that in this message today. And I'm interested in finding out. So let's pray. Now, Lord, as we look at this text, I know that they can just be words in a book. I know that they can sound like they're from Mars. I know that we can even be familiar with them and still miss you, Jesus. Help us not to miss you. And help us to understand the link that your will and your timetable have in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to make our way through these 24 verses. And I'm going to primarily focus on his brother's encounter with Jesus. But I want to fill in some details. So verses 1 through 5, if you're following along with me, thanks again for bringing your Bibles or using the red one there. If you haven't already pulled one out between page 700 and 800, I think I forgot to mention that. But after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. Remember, that was the area up north purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting to take his life. Remember, we learned this. When it says the Jews, it means the Jewish leaders and some of the Jewish leaders, not all the Jewish leaders, but most of the Jewish leaders at that time were wanting to take his life. He had taken over their turf. He had taken over their popularity, and they did not like him. They wanted to take his life. This was serious stuff, but the crowds didn't know that. They were planning this secretly. But Jesus knew it, and he purposely stayed away. In other words, he didn't go, hey, I think I'll just walk down and hang out with those guys. No, he stayed away on purpose because he knew there was other things God wanted to do. Verse 2, but when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, verse 3, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, if you're following along in the notes, what I hope you see here is that in this encounter, their advice to Jesus, his brother's advice, that is, is show yourself to the world, and here's the phrase, now. That's the implication. Show yourself to the world now. Man, strike when the fire's hot. Come on, there's an opportunity. Now, you've been studying with Brian and Steve have been teaching, you know that in the last six months, Jesus has done an incredible miracle where he fed over 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Brian talked to us about the fact that it was probably a crowd of 20,000 people. Try doing that with five loaves and two fish. And Jesus did it. And the crowd wanted to make him king. And Jesus rejected their overtures to do that. But when he began to talk to them and teach them what it would mean to really follow him, not just so they always get free meals, fish and chips, when he starts talking about what it really means to follow him, the crowds disperse. They're not interested in being called to follow Jesus the way he was talking about it. And we saw last week that he says, I'm the bread of life. You can go seeking somewhere else, but I'm the one that can really satisfy your soul and fill your life with purpose. 
But the crowds had dropped. And so his brothers are saying, look, we know your numbers are down. We know you may just be trying to like rebuild the crowd. So here's what you got to do. You need a bigger stage. And Galilee, it's okay, but Jerusalem's where it's at. This feast is going to be packed. Try some of those miracles. The crowds will love it. It's true. They would have. And uh, so Jesus hears this advice, and in a way, it sounds strangely familiar to something he heard at the beginning of his ministry. I've listed Matthew 4 out to the right, and what it tells us is, is that when Jesus had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, Satan came to tempt him. And he threw three temptations at him that may not sound much to us, but the first one was, you know, turn these loaves, turn these stones into bread, feed yourself, do it your way. Don't wait for Father to feed you. You don't need to fast, come on. Do what you want, when you want. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the second thing, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, hey, big crowd, throw yourself down and like a cat, land on your feet. Man, that'll, you know, you, you can do that and get lots more people to follow you without asking them to die. Like, you're going to die on the cross. Die to themselves. Come on, do that. And Jesus goes, don't, don't put the Lord your God to a test like that. And then eventually he offered him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I'll give you all this. You can have it right now. Just bow down to me. Jesus says, away from me. It is written, it is written, it is written. And again, he hears his brothers go, big time, come on, you can do it. Be the, be the kind of Messiah we're looking for. Make us happy. Do what you want. And Jesus doesn't do it. In fact, if you're following along, notice the next part. Twice, Jesus says, it's not yet the right time for me to do that. This is interesting language. Twice, he says, it's not yet the right time for me to do this. We've seen this before in John chapter 2 when his mother came to him at the wedding in Cana and said, hey, these people are out of wine. Can you help them out? And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, mom. He doesn't mean necessarily that he's not going to help them. He's just saying, you realize that I'm on a different timetable than you're on. You realize that God has a purpose for me that I must live out exactly. I must fulfill to the last letter of the Bible. I'm going to do it. I'm going to live totally on God's timetable, not my own. I'm not just going to live by a whim, live by any feeling I hit hits me. I'm going to live according to God's will and God's timetable. So twice he says that. Would you read verse 6 with me in that first gray box? It's the first time of the two he mentions this. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. Verse 7 goes on, and I'll read it. The, word, the world cannot hate you. He's implying that it's because they're part of it. And by the world, he doesn't mean the created world of nature or people in it. He means a system, an attitude, a way of thinking that is independent-spirited, that does things its own way instead of God's way. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast. Because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. And then verse 10 says this, However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. You're following along. Jesus goes to the feast, but not when or how they advise him to do. He does go to the feast, 
but he goes later. And most scholars believe that he probably went, if at the most, with a few of his disciples. He didn't go in the big caravan with the larger family and friends. And he probably, probably, as he had done before in John 4, cut through Samaria, which was actually a shorter trip because he didn't have an issue with Samaritans like every Jew did. And he made his way, and it tells us later in this passage, he gets there about halfway through the eight-day feast. And when he gets there, he doesn't do miracles. He's not into putting on a show. He teaches them. So he doesn't do it when or how they advise him to do, because he's on God's timetable. He's more about God's will, God the Father's will. And that's why he's come. And it tells us a really sad thing in verse 5. I'll go back and read it again. It says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. In a way, that tells us now that this is kind of a mocking spirit that they're saying. Jesus, you ought to go like down there. And we don't know if they know that the leaders were trying to kill him. Probably not. But if they did know it, now that's really interesting information from your brothers. Hey, why don't you go hang out like where they'll kill you? My mother used to say jokingly, why don't you go play out in the traffic, Jeff? <laughs> now, that was jokingly. I'm not, but I knew what she was saying. She was saying I was driving her crazy. So, the idea here is that I think his brothers have some of that kind of spirit. I mean, just think about this. Wouldn't you get tired of, hey, have you heard about Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I mean, I, I think they would have had a hard time, okay? So they say to him, you know, at least make the family proud. Do some of that stuff in a big, big way, okay? But if you're following along in the notes, this is a sad verse to me. Even Jesus' own brothers don't believe in him. In fact, look at Mark 3.20 up here on the screen, if you would. It tells us that at one point in his ministry, Jesus' own family thought he was crazy, certifiably insane. Look at this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, I don't know if you've ever been misunderstood. I don't know if you've ever had someone think about you differently than you wanted them to think about you. I don't know if you've had siblings that you were sideways with, or they just, they never got you. They never liked you. They never, you just didn't gel. But if that's ever happened to you, Jesus can relate. Jesus had brothers that didn't believe in him as the Son of God, and they, in many ways, didn't believe in him as a person. They didn't buy who he was. And that is, you know, it's easy just to say those words, but if you've experienced it, it's a zinger. <clears throat> And Jesus went through that experience, and yet even when he was being pressured by his family, and if you know what family pressure can be like, it's hard sometimes to follow God's will and God's timetable when you're being pressured, but Jesus did that. Now here's the good news. This isn't the end of the story for Jesus' brothers. And it doesn't have to be the end of the story for us either. If you're following along, within a year, they will come to trust in him. Within a year, they will come to trust in Jesus. Now, I mentioned earlier that we know the names of Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, or 
Judas oftentimes was Jude. And if you search through your Bibles in the New Testament, you will come across two letters there called James and Jude. Guess who they're written by? Jesus' brothers. And Acts 1.14 says that after Jesus died on the cross, rose again three days later, and eventually ascended into heaven several weeks after that, that his disciples gathered in an upper room, about 120 of them, and among that number of 120, look at what Acts 1.14 tells us. It says, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women. Jesus had told them to wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit who would help them live the Christian life. It says, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his what, friends? Brothers. Something happened. Something happened. We know that six months later would be the Feast of Passover at which Jesus would be crucified after the Feast of Tabernacles. And then several weeks after that, maybe a couple months later, they believe in Jesus. They're praying. They're crying out, calling on his name. What happened? How does that happen? What's the secret? How do they go from not believing in him, missing him, to now being so willing, so courageous to be counted among the number that they have come to believe in him, they know him to their toes, they, they believe that he is who he says he is. What changed? What was it? And what I want to tell you today is I believe it's found in verse 17 and the next few verses we're going to look at. So let's walk through those and then let's unpack what that verse means, okay? So let me read verses 11 through 15 next. It says, now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? People are wondering if he's going to show up at this feast, okay? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. That is about as polar opposite as you can get. Some are saying, he's great, he's good. Other people are going, he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a huckster. Wow. And I've noticed uh, that still is going on. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and he began to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? If you're following along, at the feast... Many analyze and are divided over Jesus. Many analyze and are divided over Jesus. People are going, well, I think he's this. I think he's that. And friends, is it not incredible today that we have talk radio, talk TV, my opinion, I think this, I think that. I don't know, after a while, I just get tired of it. And I get tired sometimes of hearing other people's opinions, but not so tired of hearing my own. What's going on there? We opinionate. We analyze. And what I've noticed sometimes is it's easy for me to sit in a comfortable chair and go, well, here's what I think. Here's what I think we should do. And after a while, that's just, that's just really boring. But it was creating energy in the place. And notice that they were divided over Jesus. Jesus said that people would be divided over him. He said, the world will hate me. The spirit of the world will hate me. And people that have the spirit of the world guiding their lives will hate me because I point out things in their lives that are twisted and wrong in God's sight so that they can get it right, and they don't like that. 
And that's still going on today. Some of you work in places, you have family members, you have friends, and you know what it's like to hear them say, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I think he's a fraud. I think he's like not for me, whatever. And you know what it's like to see people, even in your own family, be divided over Jesus. Jesus never promised that if he came, everybody would love him. He promised the opposite, that some would hate him. Verse 16 through following, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, let's read this verse together, verse 17. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God and whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Now, what he does in these next few verses, I need to explain because it'll probably make no sense otherwise. Some of you have been here because back in John 5, we studied how Jesus did a miracle on the Sabbath, which is Saturday for Jewish people. He did this miracle on the Sabbath where he healed a man by the pool who had not been well for 38 years. When he does this, he immediately gets into trouble with the religious leaders because they had come up with their own man-made interpretations and rules for how to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they had come up with all these things that were called work, and they said, you can do this, you can't do this. And so as soon as Jesus heals this guy, they said, you worked on the Sabbath. You can't be from God. You certainly can't be God. And they, they wanted to kill him too because they, they, he was messing up their system. Now Jesus goes back a couple chapters later and he addresses it. He says, if you want to know what kind of teacher I am, I'm just going to give you a little sample right now. Verse 19, he says this, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? See, the crowd didn't know this. They said, you're demon-possessed. The crowd answered, who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. I healed the man by the pool, and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Here's what he's saying. Moses gave you in the Old Testament law that as soon as a boy was born, eight days later, didn't matter what day it was, you're to circumcise him as part of the Old Testament covenant that I've made with Abraham, okay? Now, people doing that, that would have qualified as work, not only for the people doing it, but for the people that were getting it done to him, okay? That's work. <laughs> and what he's saying here is this. He goes, you guys are so caught up with Sabbath rules, but you make an exception to do something like that that honors the law. Isn't it better if I help a person's whole body get better on the Sabbath? Isn't that keeping the spirit of the Sabbath? And they have no answer. He basically says, stop making such cheap judgments about things. Go deeper than that. Come on. Don't get caught up in all this trivialness and this pettiness of your man-made rules. Understand the spirit of the Sabbath is to be God's. So let me come back to what he says in verse 17. Would you read it again in that second gray box out loud with me? He says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God 
or whether I speak on my own. And what I want you to see this morning in that second line under if anyone chooses to do God's will is this simple statement. Jesus says it's a will thing. Jesus says it's a will thing. Why is it possible that Jesus spent time with so many people and they never recognized who he was? John 1.10, if you look back at the very beginning of John's letter, you'll see that it says this, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize Jesus. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, how can he come like that and not be noticed? How can people miss him? Jesus says it's a will thing. It's a will thing. In other words, no matter how much stuff you're exposed to, no matter how much stuff you hear, if you don't want to do God's will, you'll miss me. But if anyone chooses to do God's will, they will find out whether my teaching comes from God or not. Now, this is huge. This means that people that just want to kind of play at figuring out who Jesus is, they're going to probably be disappointed. They're probably only going to be interested in miracles or some really emotional high stuff. But if they really want to know who Jesus is, if you and I really want to know who Jesus is, if we don't want to miss him, then we need to understand that it all gets down to our will. Now, whenever I talk about the will, it's kind of a slippery subject. It's hard to describe, isn't it? But the will is that part of us I sometimes call, it's our chooser. It, whenever you watch the different choices you make, you're getting a chance to see your will in operation. And uh, the question on the table is, are you choosing these days God's will and God's timetable for your life, or is your chooser choosing your way, your timetable, your thoughts about everything? Because Jesus says, if that's what you're caught up in, you'll miss me. You'll never really know me. You may know about me, but you'll never know me. But if anyone chooses to do God's will, they will find out. Man, this is awesome stuff. And I remember when this started coming home to me, is that when I was a teenager, I noticed that God was regularly trying to say, Jeff, I want your will. I know you're trying to impress me with all of your religious activity, but I still don't have you. I don't have your will. I don't have your control center. And I can't make you do that. Will your chooser choose me and my will, my way, my timetable? And again, nowadays, a lot of us just go, well, you know, maybe someday or I'll get around to that. But when you do that, when I do that, we sign up for not knowing Jesus. We miss him. You know, a lot of people say, well, what is God's will? And I spent a lot of time talking about most of God's will is revealed in this book. It's not necessarily difficult to understand what God's will. It's difficult to do God's will, and that's why most of us don't do it. See, God's will, the Bible says, is even the way we work. We can do God's will from the heart by working for the Lord and not for our employer so much, but doing what he wants us to do. The Bible says God's will is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Children, obey your parents in the Lord in everything. Give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, I could talk a lot about that. The basic idea of the will of God, God's will is, will I do everything, and I mean everything, with God or not? With God or not? And so many times we try and do it independently, spirited. We say, no, that's my chooser. I'm going to keep my options open. I want to do it my way. And Jesus says, come on. It's a will thing. It's a will thing. And then he goes on and says this. Only as we surrender and obey do we find out who Jesus is. Only as we surrender and obey our will, our way, our timetable to his will, his way, his timetable, will we find out who Jesus is. I read a story years ago about a general, a Marine general, and um, he was a hard-bitten guy. He was used that as soon as he gave an order, it was carried out immediately. Later in his life, he was converted. He came to Christ. He heard about grace, and he received the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. And what happened is, immediately, all of his friends around him noticed a change in him. Now he was compassionate. He had patience. He even was kind to his former enemies. And people were going, what's going on? Well, his pastor asked one day some friends, what do you think the secret is to that? And they said, the general, anytime he reads something in the scripture, does it right away. And because of that, he began to grow and change in ways that you can't unless you're willing to do that. And so it's a will thing. And Jesus is saying, but if anyone... And you know what I love about anyone? He means anyone. No matter where you've come from, no matter how much knowledge you have or not, if anyone chooses to do God's will, they will find out. They will find out. And oh, will they find out in ways they could have never imagined. A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity. I heard that Corey Tenboom's assistant was going to be in Springfield. Some of you got a chance to hear at Springfield Bible Church. I had a chance to hear at Hope Church on a Wednesday night. Some of you don't know who Corey Tenboom is, so let me just quickly tell you that in World War II, there was a family known as the Tenboom family that hid Jews in a place called the Hiding Place, uh, in, in the Baye, they called it, of their house. And uh, they were eventually found out by the Germans, and even though they were in their 50s, 60s, and 80s, her sister and dad and her were in prison in a concentration camp. Her dad died within 10 days. Her sister died just before Corey was released of starvation. But what they learned in that concentration camp about God's faithfulness, even in the darkest, deepest place, Betsy turned to Corey one day and said, we must tell the world what God has shown us here. They will believe us, Corey, because we've been here. And she died. And now Corey, through a clerical error, was released and was able to go. Well, Corey Tenboom then remembered what her sister said, and she began to speak all over the world and taught about the forgiveness that God can bring about in the human heart, taught about how God can take anyone who gives them his will and change their life. And anyway, this lady who I went to hear, Pamela Rosewell Moore, was Corey Tenboom's assistant the last seven years of her life, five of which Corey had had a stroke, and so she was unable to speak, and she had to care for when she was bedfast before she died. Now, Pamela Rosewell Moore was from England, and she stood up and said to us, told us what she'd learned from Corey Tenboom, and it was amazing. I'm still thinking about some of those things, and I've read several of her books since. But what happened is, is she said, here's what I want to tell you. My willingness to work for Corey Tenboom those last seven years as her assistant, and before that, Brother Andrew, God's smuggler, for years before that in Holland, can all be traced back to something that happened when I was 21 years old. 
She said, when I was 21 years old, I was raised in a Christian home, and my family, they were tremendous Christians. She said, my sister Sylvia was a committed Christian, but I was a half-hearted one. And our relationship was not good, and she said, I knew Sylvia was going off to the university, so one day my sister said to me, would you be willing to go to a retreat for young people such and such a weekend? And she said, because I wanted to try and get better with my sister, I, I said yes, but then I regretted it because I really didn't want to get that close to Jesus. She said, I don't want to get that close to Jesus for three reasons. One, I noticed that anybody that really gave their will to Jesus sometimes they ended up being missionaries. And that meant that they would go to foreign places. And she said, I wanted to stay in England. I want to stay near home. Second reason is, she says, I noticed that sometimes when you gave your will to the Lord, he made you speak publicly. And I wanted nothing of that. I wouldn't even talk loud enough for my teachers to hear in class. She said, but the third one was the biggie. Ever since I had been a little girl, I wanted to have a husband and three children. And I was afraid if I gave him my will he would take those away from me. So she gets to this retreat. She gets to the retreat that night. The very first speaker that she hears says 22 words that she said she will never forget the rest of her life. And I wanted to write them down so I can read them to you. The speaker said this, when Jesus Christ died for you, it was as if all the trash cans in the world were being emptied on his head. When Jesus Christ died for you, it was as if all the trash cans in the world were being emptied on his head. And she remembered that that happened because Jesus had prayed in the garden, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, that sounds really attractive right now. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And she got... She said, I, I never saw it coming. It so hit me what Jesus had done for me. Now I thought about myself arguing over my will against his will. I got back to the dorm room. That night as everybody fell asleep and I could hear the sound of their breathing, I found myself crying out to the Lord, oh Lord, with the rest of my earthly life, I now give you my will. I will go wherever you ask me to go. I will speak if you ask me to speak. I will not seek a marriage unless you give me one. I am yours completely, Lord. She said when she did that, in the next few moments, she felt like she was in a sea of love. She began to be so overwhelmed by the, the love of the Lord for her that she said, she said to him, so this is what it's like to be in your presence, Lord. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And she had to literally ask the Lord to hold back and save some of it for heaven because she was so filled with the sense that now she was in the, the safest place in the world. Her will was his will. And from that day on, she just took one step at a time and she began to just do whatever the Lord asked. Eventually, she would teach Sunday school and, yes, speak out loud. She would go to foreign places like Kenya and other places like Holland but she can look back, and she eventually did marry in her 40s. And she told that it all could be traced back to that. It's a will thing. Jesus says, it's a will thing. Where is your will today? What are you choosing? I want to give you a question to consider as we close this morning. 
Lord, what am I still doing my own way and in my time? What am I still doing my own way and in my own time? I, I don't have the skill to know what it is for you. For some of you, it may be doing your whole life your own way and in your own time. And if that's the case, Jesus says, will you, will you give me your will? Will you trust me? Will you let me lead your life? Some of us, we did that years ago, but now we've gotten back into this thing where we've gotten away from doing his will. And today he may be saying, would you, would you give me your will in a fresh way again? Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve me? And some of us are just learning daily. Let me just make two closing comments before we pray. One's about my dad and one's about my mom. I've shared this before, but when I was a teenager, I realized that Jesus was saying to me, it's a will thing in such powerful ways. And I've often joked that God knows how to speak fluent Jeff Nelson. And my dad, I don't remember most of the messages he preached as far as their content. I know they've probably helped me. But one thing I do remember is how he ended almost every message. I've shared this before. I still can't get past it. We would, whatever subject he preached on, he would end this way by saying to all of us, now having heard what God says, will you yield to him and do what he says in this area? Will you yield? Will you say yes? Will you choose to do God's will? And that question wrecked me. One of the things I learned about my will, though, is it's very stubborn and unbelievably protective. And so there were times there would be such a wrestling match with God. But I knew he was saying, Jeff, it's a will thing. Will you give me your will? Will you choose to do my will? And then I eventually, at 17 years old, trusted my life to Christ in a wholehearted way. And since that day, there's been a lot of ups and downs, but I have never been the same as far as always being about Jeff's will. But so, here's the story about my mom on Mother's Day. My mother comes up to me regularly, still a few weeks ago she did this, and says, Jeff, sometimes she calls me Jeffy Paul. Jeff, I pray for you every morning, every day, that you will stay yielded to Jesus. Because when you yield your will to his will, oh, that's when you really live. That's when you can help the most people. That's when you can serve his purposes. I need those prayers, and I need to remember every day to stay yielded. So what is it for you? Bow your head and think about that for a few moments. What is he saying to you about your will? Lord, I, I don't know what you're saying to each person. I want to make sure I listen to what you're saying to me. But help each one of us to know exactly where we are with your will and your timetable today. And show us 
how we need to choose your will to do it and then help us do it. Sing this song with us.